Well, it's a great privilege to be celebrating the Lord's table today together, and I want you to reflect upon the cross, of course. That is the richest truth we know, as Dan was saying earlier. I want to draw your attention to Second Peter, so I invite you to take your Bibles and look with me at Peter's second epistle, because it's there that he writes of the experience we had been studying in Luke chapter 9 when he was on the mountain and the glory of Almighty God in the person of Christ was radiating outward when he removed the veil of his flesh and they were staring into the glory of God in the person of Christ. And that experience is described by Peter later on because there was a wonderful opportunity, really, to explain why he and the apostles were willing to go to their death for this message. Why is it that human beings would be willing to go all the way to their death for the message of Jesus Christ? Why is it that James would be willing to be beheaded, John the Apostle would be willing to suffer as he did, boiled in oil and then sent to an island and still under the threat of suffering and persecution and even death, he was still penning the future of the kingdom and writing the apocalypse on that island. Why is it that, would, that Peter would be willing to suffer for Christ all the way to his death and as tradition tells us, was even unwilling to be crucified right side up. He didn't believe himself worthy, according to the historians, to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And so tradition says he was crucified upside down. Why is it that Peter and James and John and the other apostles were so willing to, to suffer for the sake of the message of Christ? Why were souls so important to them? that they would lay their own soul on the line. Why is it that, that the gospel of saving grace was so critical to them that they stared their enemies in the face with confidence, immovable? Well, Peter writes about the reason. Notice verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. After Peter had said these things, he went on to explain and expose the dangers of those who would come along claiming to speak for God who do not have the authority of the apostolic witness seeing his glory on the mountain, nor the authority of prophetic truth given by the Holy Spirit under inspiration. So we have in this text, really, Peter's defense of the, the special, the exclusive, the infallible, the authoritative revelation of God to his people. And the first thing he says is that it was affirmed by the audible word of God. It was affirmed on the mountain by the voice of God. That's what the terminology means here, the utterance, the, the voice that came forth, the voice that was brought forth from heaven or out of heaven. The first reason Peter is willing to go through suffering even to death for the sake of the gospel that it might be given to other lost souls is because he, he knows Jesus Christ is God and he knows that God is his refuge as we were singing in Psalm 62. And notice here that they were preaching the power and the coming of Christ. Notice the dual message. That's what we preach. When someone is lost and we want to give them the gospel, we give them the the message that there is power in the gospel. You know, people think this is just religious nonsense and and we just happen to be a room full of people who just wanted some crutch to hold on to. When we preach... What the Word of God says, we're preaching what the apostles preached, and they preached the power and the coming of Christ. Notice, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you those two things, the power and the coming. These are regularly used terms in the New Testament for the second coming of Christ. There will be power when he comes. He will definitely arrive. He will appear. Everyone will see it. It's all over the New Testament. And the focus of this statement is not so much just on His arrival, but most importantly, His eternal presence. It will be God of very God in the person of Christ. And He will be with His people from that moment on. And anyone outside of Him, they're going to face Him. That's what they preached. The risen Christ will come and he will demonstrate his omnipotence openly. As one commentator says, I love that word, openly. He will present it. They preached that. And notice they preached the polar opposite of myths. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales, fables. It has the idea of legends and myths and Everything instead of the absolute straightforward truth. And he says that these things that other men have preached have been cleverly devised or knowingly crafted within the imaginations of men and presented as truth when in fact it's just mere human wisdom. Peter's preaching wasn't rooted in some sinful desire to manipulate. His preaching wasn't the use of stories and mystical ideas and fanciful legends in order to manipulate people. He had no personal agenda for gain in any of it. He was going to suffer and go all the way to his death for it. And think about, as Dan said earlier, the pitiable nature of 
being that duped or thinking you can dupe humanity and then face the afterlife. I mean, if Peter, as an eyewitness to what happened on the mountain, if it was really just all bubbling up in his own mind, if it was a mystical tale that he just imagined, why did every one of them, every one of them, continue to tell the same account of events Especially, and this is most important, especially the parts of the story hated most by their enemies, which would incur the most wrath, even up to their violent deaths. Why well, tell the same story? Paul would say that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, your faith is also in vain. Tonight I want to follow up on this message with a message I've entitled, The Eternal Hopelessness of a Bible with Errors. Your faith is in vain. It's hollow, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. And if it's a hollow message, then it's meaningless. So no one should trust in it. And your trust in it is meaningless. And everyone sitting here is wrapped up in meaninglessness. When Paul preached a risen Christ, people believed it. They began to learn what Jesus taught as... The Old Testament pointed to him, and as the New Testament letters circulated into churches, they began to learn what Jesus taught, and they followed his words, and they even made uh, sacrifices in their personal life and endured ridicule from friends and loved ones. And they heard all the Old Testament stories, and they believed that God would send a Savior, and that he did send a Savior. And so now their faith was meaningless. All the... Men and women of whom the world was not worthy, listed in Hebrews 11, meaningless. They've heard all the prophets being killed for their faith, all of it for absolutely nothing. You think about it, since the time of Christ, even since the time of Christ's ascension as written and recorded in the scriptures, untold millions have believed in Jesus Christ. And, And history records how so many of them were cast out of society throughout redemptive history, how so many of them were beaten and systematically tortured and crucified and skinned alive and burned alive and buried alive and boiled in oil. Other generations were fed to lions and slowly cut into pieces. They were tied to horses and pulled apart, beheaded, hanged, impaled, strangled, drowned, And here we are in 2016 and you heard the message one day and you believed it and you've been trying to live for Jesus Christ. You've been following his word and striving to be holy out of gratitude for his sacrifice and submission to his lordship. And if he isn't truly God, if Peter's message just was a cleverly devised tale, if it was conjured up in his own mind and just a myth... There's no coming back from the grave. Our faith is empty and the ideas are just absurdities. This text says, no. Peter didn't decide to carve out some some road ministry out of inventing bizarre notions, making up in his mind some idea, fanciful idea about an ultimate ruler who would one day come in power and majesty to reward the faithful and punish the rebellious. Notice the strong contrast here, but we were 
eyewitnesses of his majesty. In the original language, that's the strongest contrast. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter grounds the content of his message on the fact that he was a personal, reliable eyewitness to divine splendor, and it was audibly authenticated by God. Just a bunch of blue-collar fishermen. How did they comprehend majesty? The majesty of Almighty God. How did a bunch of, you know, street guys understand the majesty of Almighty God in the person of Jesus? Well, because it was divinely authenticated with a divine voice. God's own audible voice. Verse 17. When Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such a voice which came forth... Such a voice as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Here's what that voice said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We looked at that last week. And he says we ourselves heard it. And it was made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I mean the... the, the sensory things going on on the mountain, seeing his glory, seeing Moses and Elijah, all the Old Testament history swept into the authentication of it. And then being frightened by the glory cloud and then the voice, all of it as a package, made the mountain in Peter's mind a holy mountain. See, so what does it mean? What's the implication? When Peter preached the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the apostles preached, they had the divine authentication from God audibly. The divine authentication from God audibly so that whatever Peter preached, it was to be believed and followed. It is the truth. It was affirmed by the audible word or voice of God. That's the first reason that they went to their death. The second reason they went to their death is that this entire revelation was anchored to the written revelation of God. It was anchored to the written revelation of God. Look at verse 19. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. That's the, the wonderful language that speaks of His coming in power and your full glorification with Him. It's great language. The morning star, Jesus Christ, His full blazing glory arises in your heart and in your life because you're fashioned for glory with a body that matches the inside and God's glory is shining out through you in the perfection of holiness when that day dawns, when Christ comes. But verse 20, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the first thing you see here is the certainty and clarity of God's Word. The apostles wrote it down as having been authenticated by the audible voice of God in their witness. We were to listen to what they say, and as they wrote... 
It wasn't just an oral testimony anymore. It wasn't just three men coming off a mountain saying, this is what happened to us. It wasn't just an oral testimony. Although it was critical that they write down for all of posterity that they had the experience. You don't just have epistles. You don't just have Second Peter. You have the mountain experience written about in the Gospels. But although they were given apostolic authority by Jesus Christ... And we saw last time the succession. God the Father told it to the Son. The Son told it to the apostles through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's an unbreakable link. And it gives the apostles the authority to lay the foundations for the new covenant ministry of the church until Jesus comes. You see that in Ephesians 3.20. The apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church after which then comes this great spread of gospel grace ministry globally through the hearts of believers. We now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's no longer located just in Jerusalem. It's now every believer. And we go out with the glorious power of the gospel. From that apostolic witness, there was authority given to them, affirmed by the audible word of God, and then it was anchored to the written word of God. And Peter indicates here there is certainty in the word of God and clarity in it. Notice, we have... The prophetic word. It indicates that the written revelation is ours permanently. We have it permanently. It is given to us. It is settled. It is written down. It cannot be altered. It abides as the possession of God's people. You have the revelation. How sad it is when we have Bibles all over our shelves and we don't touch them. Tragic. We have it. It was permanently given. It is the written word of God. It was the once for all faith delivered to the saints. The body of truth. More sure here speaks of the nature of the written revelation. The prophetic word. It's breathed out by God. It's put in writing. And when it's passed down from one disciple to the next, it's not then merely for three men on a mountain... It's not merely the oral testimony of three men. It now goes to generation after generation as it is preserved in its written form. The idea here is that its origin is God. Its nature is that it is prophetic. The written word has the same character of prophecy in the Old Testament when God would speak truth directly into the mind of the prophet and he would speak it exactly as he received it. By the way, prophetic word here has the definite article, the prophetic word. So everyone, every audience that read this, Peter's words, was to know there was already a familiarity with this body of revelation. The letters were being circulated. The Old Testament was settled. Jesus had affirmed it. And it is, the verb says, made more sure. We have, literally, the more sure prophetic word. Or we have more sure the prophetic word. The quality of this written revelation is that it is firmly established and therefore reliable. So what is Peter saying? First of all, he says, he says that the apostolic testimony to Christ's coming in power was audibly authenticated by God so that we can believe and entrust ourselves to the apostles' preaching their message that they preached, which came from Christ. But that authenticated message from the apostles is anchored now to the written revelation, the more sure source of truth than even the oral retelling of an experience of three men on the mountain. 
They are apostles. They have the apostolic authority. They were audibly authenticated by God. And as they wrote the word of God down, being chosen as those who would be inspired by the Holy Spirit, there's now not just an oral retelling from one generation to the next of an experience of three men on the mountain. It is now the written revelation inspired by the Spirit of God when those men wrote. So the whole prophetic scripture written down is now certain for all generations. And it's really unmistakable what the reader would have taken away from this statement. That the written revelation, having revealed everything God intended about our redemption and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His cross and His resurrection and our glorious future, it is the ultimate anchor of truth. That's the takeaway. The revelation of God given through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, and then through Him to the apostles, and then as they were inspired to write it down, it is the ultimate anchor of truth for the believer. That's why I said to you last time, you must listen to it desperately, submissively, worshipfully, humbly. You can't ignore this. It has certainty and clarity with it. Notice, knowing this first... He says in verse 20. It's grammatically tied to verse 19. So it teaches that our response to Scripture is based on that truth that we know and believe. There it is. The two are tied together. So knowing this first of all. Knowing what? That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. There's a purity and eternality to it. It didn't come from human origin. We know that it's believable... It was authenticated audibly by God. The apostolic witness was authoritative. And then they were inspired to write it down. And as they wrote it down, it still maintained its purity and eternality. It wasn't a matter of some human interpretation. Notice the line there, one's own interpretation. That's a great phrase, one's own interpretation. Written written revelation did not originate in the prophet's own assessment of his circumstances, his solution to the scene that he confronted. It wasn't invented in his own interpretation of the vision that was presented to his own mind. In the Old Testament, when a prophet received the word of God to his mind, he spoke it exactly as he received it. And there was great danger if you didn't. Do not add to his word or take away from it. Or the plagues of the entire revelation come upon you. It says it at the end of the entire canon of Scripture. Proverbs 30 says it. You don't add to this thing. You don't take away from it. So he spoke it exactly as he heard it. It's the same idea here. No written prophecy is of private interpretation. So it didn't come from man's reasoning capacities, even though man The men who wrote it were reasonable men. They were rational men. They were in their right mind. Though that's the case, what is spoken here is a, a familiar idiom to that day. No prophecy of Scripture, or literally, all prophecy of Scripture is not even. That's really how you ought to read it. We say similar things to that. Absolutely no way can that have happened. That's how we would say something to really make it a dramatic negative. And that's what he's doing here. A strong denial. In fact, I like, I don't often like the NIV translation because they, in, they insert interpretations into the, into the translation at times. But the NIV, I think, 
nailed this, no prophecy of the scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. As Calvin commented, they did not blab their inventions of their own accord or according to their own judgments. False prophets of Jeremiah's day were charged with doing that very thing. Nor was it from man's intentions or will. Notice, no prophecy of Scripture ever came by the will of man. Ever, by the way, is is in the text, in your translations, because it's emphatic in the sentence. At some time or another in the past ever did Scripture get written originating in man's intentions or his will. It never came by the will of man. It wasn't by what an, uh, uh, one individual might have willed or desired or intended. Again, strong contrast, exclusively, it came as men were moved by the Holy Spirit. Being born along by the Holy Spirit, these men who were authoritatively chosen by God, they were born along by the Holy Spirit, and Peter states it, This way to highlight that the eyewitness revelation that he wrote down was none other than the Holy Spirit speaking from God. From God. Now, Peter wasn't inanimate. It wasn't some bizarre trance, some mindless state that he went into. He was conscious, and his mind was exercising its rational abilities, but every prophetic word that is Scripture, that he and the other authors of Scripture penned, was ordained, it was superintended, and it was inspired without error by the infallible, infallible Holy Spirit of truth who inspired them to write it. It was breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16 says. So it has certainty, it has clarity, it has purity, it has eternality. And just like when the apostles were on the mountain, when Peter, James, and John were there, and the voice from heaven, God himself, said, listen to him, Peter takes that, and he internalizes it, and he writes its implications here in verse 19. Notice verse 19. To which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. So... Peter writes of its certainty and its clarity and its purity and its eternality. And now he writes of its practicality and its urgency. To which you do well to pay attention. You say, oh, that that sounds like, you know, you're just sort of mentally listening to it. No, the verb means to take heed to it, follow it, submit to it, obey it, listen to it, own it, possess it, embrace it. In the words of James, receive the word implanted is able to save your souls. And so here we are back on the mountain. Listen to him. Why listen to him? Why listen to him worshipfully, desperately, submissively? Because he's sinless. Peter and James and John saw it. They heard it from the authenticated voice from God. With him I'm well pleased. He always does what's obedient He's perfect. And so therefore, He's the only one that can become your substitute for sin. If you're here today, 
Jesus is going to come in power and glory. And when you stand before him, when all of humanity is called to him from their jobs, from their business, from their empires, from their wars, from their belief systems, and they're called out of all these false religions and all of the graves, and they're called out of all of life on earth, they're going to be called to the judgment seat of Christ. The great throne of judgment. And they're going to face him, John 5 says, because the Father has given all judgment to the Son. You're going to face him. And if you do not have a substitute for your sin, you're done. You will be sent out of his presence, shocked and full of anguish and a piercingly clear conscience not clear from sin but clarity of conscience for all the ways you offended God and all the opportunities you had to reach out to him and it's going to bear down on you and you're going to stare into an eternity without Christ and there will be none of the hope we were singing about earlier he won't be your refuge he will not be your hope there are no second chances when you are called to the Savior And you have rejected him and wanted to save yourself. That's it. You say, well, I don't believe that. I understand. It doesn't change it. The power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will happen. And every time you've said, I don't believe that, is going to come back and haunt you. Every word, every rejection because you have no substitute and yet he's the perfect substitute and he offered himself as a guilt offering for sin and then he reached out to the sinner and said believe me believe me he is coming you try to offer yourself you'd have to offer yourself all the time and you'll never be good enough and there will be no righteousness in a human being that's ever good enough or acceptable to God it doesn't matter how you've lived You sin once, which is true of all of us, then you die eternally. That's it, separated from God. Your soul will live in anguish, but you will be separate from God. So when we say Jesus Christ becomes your substitute because he's the perfect one, Peter heard it. Peter wrote of it and he said you can believe it because the Holy Spirit of truth, the Spirit of Christ himself inspired them to put it into writing and then it was brought down through the generations preserved by God and is in your hearing today, right now. You wonder why we celebrate the Lord's table as Christians? If you're here and you don't know Christ. This isn't some religious ritual that makes us feel better. This is a table of gratitude and love for Christ. The little wafer that we hand out has no magic in it. It's just a wafer. Get them here at Publix. We don't pronounce a blessing over them and suddenly it changes magical into something. It's memorial, it's a symbol. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, he said, this is my body. Well, clearly it couldn't be magically his body because he's still alive. There's his body at the table. 
He was clearly saying it symbolically. This represents my body, which is for you. I'm laying it down for you, and I'm bearing your sins in my body, the perfect body, the perfect life. This cup is, represents the new covenant in my blood that I'm about to shed. And I'm going to shed it all the way to the end of my life. Because you couldn't just bleed for sin. You had to die. And you couldn't just die any other way. You had to shed your blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without the death of a sacrifice, there can be no satisfaction of God's wrath. And yet you and I could never be that sacrifice. Only He is that sacrifice. That's why we celebrate. It's an act of gratitude and love and obedience. The Lord commanded it. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Would you bow for a moment? Lord, we are going to come to your table and we, we are stunned that you brought your certain and pure and eternal revelation of yourself to us even 2,000 years later. We have your word preserved. We can read it. We can read what happened on the holy mountain. We can read the implications of, of what happened for the apostles and then we can read that you spoke from heaven and said, listen to your son. And then your spirit moved men to pen their witness. And we have this prophetic word, so sure, so certain, handed down to all generations upon whom you would pour out your grace. Lord, there are some here by divine appointment that don't know you. They don't even know what this is. They don't understand it. And I pray that your eye of care and mercy would be upon them. That you would move upon their hearts in kindness and mercy. We, we were in those dark places, every one of us, living for ourselves, doing what we thought was best for us and unaware that we were under the power of sin and the evil one. And you shined that light in a dark place. You brought the lamp of your word and its certainty exploded upon our doubts and its purity washed over our wickedness. And its eternality stunned our temporal living for ourselves. And its Savior met our need. And I pray that you do that this morning for lost souls in our midst. Lord, may we love you in grace and gratitude as we partake of these elements, confessing our sin. We don't want to partake of these things if we have unconfessed sin in our hearts, for we would bring chastening down upon our heads. 
make our hearts clean, make all sin resolved, clearing up issues with bitterness that we have against others or harboring sins in our hearts, offenses against you we've never dealt with. We confess them to you that we might be clean as we worship. As you continue praying, the men are going to pass the bread.